Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Welcome to Significant Others. I'm Liza Powell O'Brien, and in yesterday's episode, we examined Bayard Rustin and his significant role in the life of Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement. I'm now joined by one of my favorite sources, host of Making Gay History, Eric Marcus, to go a little deeper. Eric, thank you so much for joining us here today. Before we begin talking about Bayard Rustin, Could you orient us a little bit about your podcast, what it is, and the inspiration behind it? Sure. Glad to. And I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. Um, Making Gay History was an accident, and I can't take credit for it. I can't can't even take credit for the book, uh, for thinking of the book that was the reason I recorded more than 100 interviews for two editions of a book called Making Gay History, first published in 1992. Uh, The idea for the book came from an editor at what was then Harper & Row, uh, a friend as well. He called when I was working at CBS and asked if I would consider writing a proposal for an oral history of what was then called the gay and lesbian civil rights movement. That was in 1988. Wow. And it was just around that time that I found out that my career at CBS was not going to go where I wanted it to go because I was gay. Oh, wow. I wanted, you know, I was behind the scenes. I was in a, a segment producer and I wanted to be an on, uh, on air, uh, correspondent. And in so 1988, I, you hit that wall. Oh, yeah. There was nobody out on national news, either broadcast or cable. Nobody. I, it's it's amazing how rapidly things have changed in recent history. I'm sure there's still much more work to be done. But I was a teenager in the 80s, and uh, I'm it doesn't it doesn't seem that long ago to me. But in other respects, it's like absolutely different era. It's ancient history. Um, yeah. And I asked for a meeting with uh, the head of um, of talent recruitment at CBS, who happened to be a, a Vassar graduate, as was I. Me too. Which was probably, oh, what class I didn't are know you? you went there. Uh, I'm class of 92. Oh, I'm class of 80. Oh my gosh. Fantastic. It is. Oh, I'm so glad to meet a fellow Vassar alone. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. Uh, what freshman dorm did you live in? Jewett. So did I. No. <laughs> yes. I was in, so I was on the third floor, which is right where the tower starts. Yes. And they turned a storage room into a triple. Oh, my that's God. That's what I was in. It was not good. They've since, they've since renovated uh, Jewett, yes. I would think. Um, or they did. Um, yeah. I was on 4 East. Oh, my um, God. And I somehow wound up with a single freshman year, which was probably not a good thing because I got in a lot of trouble. <laughs> good so. trouble? Did you make um, good trouble? <laughs> yeah, well, no, I got in a lot of trouble. I, I got in trouble that I that was not good for me. Uh-huh. Um, got it. Got so it, got might it. have might have might have been. Uh, you were not I, alone. 
<laughs> no, no, no. So I had this appointment with uh, with the head of talent, and I wanted to know because by that point my first book had been published, The Male Couple's Guide to Living Together. Mm -hmm. So I was out, and my publisher helpfully sent a copy of uh, of the book to every single person at CBS News. So I arrived one morning, a few weeks after I started my job. Oh no! Um, you know they, they might have warned me, but I was out anyway. But yeah. it was on everyone's desk at the office, which led to some interesting conversations including one with a colleague who wanted to know who played the husband and who played the wife. Oh, God. So, um, so it was clear that my, so I asked for this appointment, had this conversation, and after much discomfort on the part of the executive, uh, I, I simply said, I need to know for my career, would you ever put an openly gay person on camera? And she said, no. Mm. So it was around the time that I was offered this opportunity to write a proposal for a book. I wasn't being offered the book. Long story short, the, the proposal was bought, and then I had to do a little research because I knew almost nothing about the movement. And I had said to the editor when he first suggested this idea, I don't know anything about the history of the movement. I'm not an academic. Why me? Um, he said, I want someone fresh to the subject. And I said, well, I'm really fresh to the subject. Wow. So I thought the movement began at Stonewall at that sure. point. So um, that's how I came to do the book. Mm -hmm. um, fast forward many years, um, I thought I was done with all of my gay work by around 2005 mm -hmm. and <laughs> it may have been 2008. I'm not remembering now. And I, uh, turned over my whole collection, all of my interviews, uh, and my papers to the New York public library mm. with an agreement that they digitized the whole collection. And then fast forward again to 2015, I was trying to figure out what to do next in my career. I had just been fired from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is a whole other story. Mm. Um, so there I was, 55, a journalist. No one was going to hire a 55-year-old journalist right. ever. So I read one of my favorite journalist books. Um, Barbara Bradley Haggerty, who had been at NPR, wrote a book called uh, Life Reimagined for mm. people who were making career changes in midlife. Mm. I was past midlife, but it was a very helpful book. And one of the key things she said was to look at your assets. Called the New York Public Library to see where they were with the digitizing. Because I checked in with them over the years and they hadn't done it yet. Mm. They had just finished digitizing my collection. Wow. So I did a second thing that Barbara Bradley Haggerty, thank you, Barbara, uh, suggested, which was to go out for coffee or have drinks with lots of people to have conversations mm -hmm. and to figure out what to do with this collection. And uh, what came up was an idea for an education project to use excerpts from the Making Gay History interviews, which I uh, had recorded with broadcast quality equipment. And I hired my neighbor, uh, Sarah Birmingham, who had worked for the BBC and worked for NPR in Arkansas. Uh, I asked her if she could cut tape. And when she got down to about 18 minutes for the first couple of pieces for this education project, she said, sounds like a podcast. Wow. Um, that was 2016. Mm -hmm. Our episodes have been downloaded. We've produced, we're just finishing our 12th season. Our episodes have been downloaded more than 5 million times in 220 countries and territories around the world. That's incredible. And so are you only covering subjects who are already in your book, or are you doing new subjects all the time? No. And that's where Bayard Rustin comes in. So, mm. no. Mostly for my archive, but mm -hmm. we have gone beyond the archive because there mm -hmm. are limits. Um, I'm often asked, or I've often been asked, is there anyone you wish you could have interviewed mm. who you didn't interview? Bayard Rustin died in 1987. Oh. Um, I started my work in 1988. 
And I often cited him, even though I knew almost nothing about him. Um, I always cited him. And then somewhere along the way, Sarah Burningham said, we really should figure out how to do something on Bayard Rustin. And so this is where Walter Nagel, who was Bayard's longtime partner, enters the story for you, correct? Yes. And it actually starts with Sarah Burningham again. Okay. So Sarah Burningham at the time was my neighbor on West 20th Street in Chelsea. Mm -hmm. She had two young daughters uh, at PS 11 down the block. And one of the other mothers with young children, who she got to know, knew about our podcast and said to Sarah one day, you know, I grew up with Bayard Rustin and Walter Nagel. I was in and out of their apartment. Wow. They lived eight blocks north of where Sarah and I lived. Oh, my God. I walk uptown from 20th Street to our recording studio on 44th and 9th. I pass Bayard's building almost every day. Oh, my God. I had no idea before we did this episode with Bayard, before the tapes were discovered by Sarah Burningham with Walter Nagel, that he was my neighbor. That's incredible. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. You never know who's living next door or up the block. And so then this woman who knew Walter was able to introduce you? Yes. And Sarah said, can you make an introduction? Because we had been looking for a speech that Bayard gave at the University of Pennsylvania in 1987, where he spoke about his sexuality. Because there was nothing in the Library of Congress anywhere oh where God. he talked about his sexuality. Wow. So... The mom at the school made an introduction, and Sarah got in touch with Walter, and he said, well, during the last 10 years of our relationship, uh, they were together for 10 years, during the, the 10 years we were together, I recorded all of Bayard's speeches and interviews. I mean, what, what a hero from the perspective of a historian, right? Yes, yes. And Unbelievable you know where, foresight. Do you know where he kept the tapes? Uh-oh. In Trump's bathroom? No. <laughs> Funny enough, I lived in such a small apartment. That was just about the only place I had room for my tapes. Um, he, had, he kept the tapes in a suitcase underneath his bed. Uh-huh. So he arranged to pass off the tapes from the University of Pennsylvania to Sarah on the corner of 23rd and 8th Avenue, which is a place where... It, many other transactions have taken place, I'm Many sure. other. We have lots of issues around <laughs> drug, drug uh, dealing here in, the, in Chelsea. I joke that we deal in tapes. Uh-huh. Um, so Sarah listened to the tape. It was unusable. He was too far away from the uh-huh. podium to, to, uh, uh-huh. yeah. And Sarah said, well, what else what might else you have? Got? What else you got? <laughs> and it turned out he had a recording of an interview that Byard gave to Peg Byron at the gay paper in Washington, D.C. The tape recorder was on the desk between Byard and Peg Byron. And even though there's a lot of background noise from... Park Avenue South, where he had his office, it was usable. That's That was in the Blade, right? That was the newspaper? That was in yeah. the Washington Blade. Thank you for reminding yeah. me, because yeah. I, I was trying to avoid, get around the fact that I yeah, suddenly yeah. couldn't remember. I'm, I'm amazed that I remember it, so yeah. That was in the Washington Blade. So we had this, we had this interview. And what's crazy to me, so then I, I actually pitched a, a piece to NPR, to Michelle Martin, and she said, how did you... How is it that no one has ever heard this before? Right. And I said, well, no one knew it existed. And so I I felt a little self-conscious as as a gay white Jew from Queens, where I'm from, Mm -hmm. being the person who had the privilege to share this audio. Right. Um, But I take great pride in it, especially since Bayard, uh, during his lifetime, 
spoke of the importance of the alliance between uh, mm -hmm. Black Americans and Jewish Americans in fighting for equal rights and against discrimination and anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. um, so it's actually one of the things I'm most proud of in my mm -hmm. entire career. Although I didn't initiate it, Sarah Birmingham is really responsible for this, um, along with Walter Nagel for Saving the Tape. It's one of the things I'm most proud of in my entire career. Mm. Well, it was really, it, it was pivotal. It was profoundly, you know, instrumental in in this, I don't even know whose project it is, uh, but to the sort of overall project of trying to unearth him from where he's been buried, right? Yes. You know, in preparation for our conversation today, I read his obituary in the New York Times. Ugh. And it was fascinating because it wasn't until the last paragraph that they mentioned his homosexuality. When that, in fact, was central to his experiences throughout his life, it shaped yeah. him. Yeah. Um, and he was in, he, and he was out at a time when virtually he was out before anyone spoke about being out because yeah. it was so dangerous. The phrase hadn't even come into use. Right. Um, and here he was on tape talking about it. And I just, it just blew my mind. And, and not only to be out in that moment, but to be a black man who was out at any moment, especially, you know, earlier in American history. I'm right now is a little bit of a spoiler alert, so maybe we'll take it out of the episode. But um, I uh, just wrote the episode on Billy Strayhorn, who was Duke Ellington's co collaborator. He was also out in the 40s wow. in New York. And that's why, part of why we don't know anything about him. And Duke was like, Mercer Ellington has this great quote where he's like, oh, he, my dad didn't care at all if anyone was gay. Huh. And, uh, you know, it was the music industry. Everybody was, you know, whatever. And right. he was, uh, he's like, if they were, if they were a good musician, like who cares what else they are kind of. Well, and we think that every time, we think that, that decades ago, we're just like today, most people knew nothing about homosexuality. Right. And that, and for that reason, it was often more accepted than it, than it, Right. And it came to be in the 1950s and 60s when suddenly uh, people were more focused on on homosexuals. I was surprised in my interviews how many of the older people I interviewed uh, who grew up in the 1920s and 30s were accepted by their families. Sure. In part because just, it wasn't demonized in the way it came, came right. to be. Right. Um, so that tape of, of Bayard to me, brought to life his words, because there are places where those words have been voiced by others, mm -hmm. where he talks about his sexuality. Mm -hmm. But to have him talk about it mm -hmm. in his own voice, with his own inflections, is so much uh, richer and important. That story he told I me, mean, first of all, I love hearing him call out for Walter on the tape when he's trying to get yes. something. And you yes. sort of hear the, you know, it's the, the sort of quotidian reality of, yes. of a couple um, Walter's not, not answering, not listening, whatever. Yes, yes, yes. No, it's a typical couple in the New York times. He's referred to as his adopted son, which he was mm -hmm. because that was the only way they could protect each other. There was no marriage then mm -hmm. and his assistant, but it's mm -hmm. not mentioned in the New York times that he was Bayard's partner in life yeah. and right. archivist and all of that. Um, right. so even, I mean, the New York Times was was late to to, to describing the partners of people as real partners. And this mm. is the case during the AIDS crisis. So often right. it wasn't mentioned. And sometimes it was mentioned as companion, as if that person was a dog. Right. Um, I was going to ask about the adoption, actually, because I, uh, I had been aware of that as well. And it made me curious about how it's such a smart move. You know, it was such a prescient thing to do. 
I'm wondering how uncommon it was uh, or wasn't. I'm not an expert. I'm going to guess that it was rare. Mm-hmm. Their circumstances were such that made it easier because of the difference, their difference in age. Oh, right. Sure. They were, uh, uh, Walter was much younger. Yes. They lived in New York City. Yeah. Um, they had to be investigated by child services, whatever it was called back then. Even though Walter at the time would have been in his 20s, 30s? They still had to be. I don't remember how old he was at the time, but yes, they still would have. Yes, they absolutely had to be. Uh, yeah. And uh, apparently that they, they got through it. It's kind of remarkable um, that, it, that it worked. It is, but there's a, there's a big problem with adoption mm. in comparison to marriage. You can get divorced. You can't unadopt. Right. right. So you have to be pretty sure of the relationship. Yes, you do have to be sure. Um, and what privileges did that afford them? Uh, that meant Bayer could pass his estate untaxed uh-huh. onto, onto um, Walter. Uh, Walter. It meant that he could also assume the lease mm-hmm. on their apartment. Mm-hmm. It meant he could visit him in the hospital. He could make medical mm-hmm. decisions for his adoptive father. Mm-hmm. Um, all the rights and privileges and more that would be associated with marriage. And in this case, he was the immediate next of kin. Next of kin. He was the child. And then Walter did his part spectacularly in terms of, you know, I can imagine there's one part of that agreement that's just the, you know, we want to be as much together as we can be while I'm here. And then we want you not to suffer when I'm gone because you don't, you know, have access to any right. of the things we shared. But then also for Walter to take the responsibility so seriously as he did. Yes. Um, yes. I wonder how unusual that is for any, you know, partner in anyone's life to be so conscientious of what he was caretaking or is still caretaking. And still, yes, um, he was aware. He was aware of of the importance of who uh, Bayard was and Mm. has devoted himself to protecting and sharing that legacy. Um, And little did he know that he was preserving something like those very rare tapes that have offered us a window into Bayard's life that we would not have otherwise. How do you, and this is one of those annoying theoretical questions. I love those questions. I ask them myself. (laughs) What opportunities do you think um, Bayard might have seized on had he been able to extend his life another, you know, 50 years. If, oh. You know, there are so many different eras of the the gay rights movement. Um, and I'm just curious about how, because his his response to advocacy was so personal and specific. And he was so, you know, those, those Quaker values so informed everything he did. And he yeah. would have agitated in a very specific way. I'm wondering if you have thoughts Well, it was on that. 87 when he, fi- when he spoke about mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Publicly, yeah, about being gay, yeah. Whereas um, the New York Times said it in his uh, uh, obituary, his homosexuality. Um, not sure they were using the word gay yet in eighty at that point in eighty seven. Mm. He he would have been such an important and iconic figure, mm. um, and would have been an elder statesman. Easy, easy to imagine um, as the as the late eighties unfolded and we moved into the nineties, and would have had such. He would have been untouchable mm-hmm. because of his cred. And I think he would be taught more frequently than he is now. Right. I think back to when I was in school and how interesting a whole aspect of the black civil rights movement is unknown because it involved yeah. him and Dr. King 
and the FBI suggesting that he had a homosexual relationship with Dr. King. Um, and Adam Quayton Powell. Oh my God, yes. And his response. Yeah, to that. and who, who wouldn't remember those? Two? Who wouldn't want to know about that? That's that's delicious, know. you know, for kids. It really is. It makes it it makes history much more. It interesting, does. It does, say. and it's not taught. You know, so that's you know, the idea that gay history is separate from American history is just, it's, it's, it, you can't. A fallacy. Yeah, you can't take it apart. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network. So whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a mysterious room of long-forgotten moldy mascot memorabilia. Often pitched by ad agencies, always rejected by NJM. Is it real? We may never know. But what is real is NJM's dedication to doing what's right for their customers. Astoundingly, they're proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. Learn more at njm.com. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Brubble. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries, for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Priscilla. This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne Toast down in Brazil. Smells like anything you think could happen, probably will. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. I wanted to ask you about your research process because... You know, you, you cover people who not only are lesser known, but sometimes actively hidden and yeah. on multiple counts. And so how has it worked? I'm sure there are many different versions of the story you could tell, but you know, I'm interested in all of them. <laughs> when I was doing the book originally, mm -hmm. it was pre-internet. I did a lot of research. Mm -hmm. So the first challenge for me when I did uh, the book was to create a timeline of the movement. There was none. Mm. So I sat in the what was it called then it was the um the gay and lesbian bay area historical society um mm -hmm. i'm forgetting the exact name they had a building in noe valley it was a victorian building uh, a one-time house and sat in the living room at a big table with all of the copies of the advocate which mm -hmm. was first published in the late 1960s all the copies of the mattachine review and one magazine and the latter and created a timeline and that was just after the 89 earthquake in san francisco so every once in a while there were there were tremors and the house shook oh man um yeah so that's how i started there was john d'amelio had written a book on uh, the gay rights movement and yep. so i pulled from that as well so you started with the prominent leaders of the movement well i started with people who were mentioned in print okay smart um not all of them prominent 
I see. Uh, okay. So a lot of them were, and a lot, a lot of pseudonyms. So someone like Lisa Ben, mm. uh, whose real name was Edith Ide, mm. I came across her name in the latter, and I knew I wanted to interview her because she created Vice Versa, America's Gayest Mag- Magazine, which she typed on her office typewriter in 1947 at RKO Radio oh, Pictures in Hollywood. Wow. Typed it through twice using five sheets of carbon each time and had 10 copies of each. Also sang in the gay clubs in the 1950s and 60s. Wrote her own music and her own lyrics to popular songs because she didn't like the uh, entertainment at the time. Drag queens who played to the straight men who were led into the lesbian clubs at night to watch the women dance. This oh is my what God. went on. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So I knew I wanted to interview people who are not so well known. Mm-hmm. And I wound up leaving people out of the book, some of them who were very well-known, like um, Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin, who were then, when I was working on the book, well-known. Today, most people don't know who they are, so I was able to use them in the podcast. I spent a lot of time on the phone talking to people, getting mm-hmm. their suggestions. So if I may, I just want to give one example of how I yeah. found somebody who was pivotal. Please. I knew I wanted to interview somebody who had been at the Managing Society Convention in Den- Denver, Colorado in 1959. Mm-hmm. So I called these two guys, a gay couple in Denver who had the gay bookstore who I'd interviewed for my first book and then stayed with them when I was on tour for the first book in 1988. And I said, do you know anybody who was involved with the Managing Society in Denver? And he, they said, oh yeah, Elver Barker, here's his number. So I called Elver. He had been at the 1959 convention. And before I hung up, the last thing he said was, oh, you should talk to Wendell Sayers. I haven't talked to him in years, but he was at the 59 convention. He's black. He was born in 1903. Um, I'm sure you'll be interested. He said, we don't talk anymore, but I'm sure you'll be interested to talk to him. Well, Wendell Sayers is in my book. Elbert Barker is not. Um, because Wendell's story was extraordinary at age 16 in 1919, he was sent from Western Kansas to the Mayo Clinic by his dad. He drove with his mom, slept in a tent on the side of the road, uh, bought food at gas stations because they were black and weren't allowed to stay in hotels or eat in restaurants. And he was diagnosed as a homosexual at the, uh, Mayo Clinic in 1919. Oh man. So that's how I found Wendell. A lot of it was serendipitous. Um, So uh, the book is not a comprehensive book. The podcast is not comprehensive. I really followed um, my late ex-partner gave me a quote from Lytton Strachey Mm -hmm. about the search for history, how you Mm. row out on this vast ocean and you dip your bucket into the sea and you put a spotlight down to the bottom of the ocean and you fill your bucket and pull it to the surface and see what you find. Wow. so I'm not a historian, by the way. I, my background is in urban planning and architecture and then journalism. But I, I, I had to ask questions. Yeah. And I'm very curious. And once I started asking questions and interviewing people, I was so totally hooked and also terrified that I, something would happen to me and I wouldn't get the chance to finish the book. Mm. That every time I had to travel to interview people before I got on a plane, I made a, a hard disk copy mm-hmm. of what I was working on put it in a FedEx envelope to my editor with instructions of how to pick up the project where I left off so that it got done. Because so many of the people I interviewed had stories to tell that would never have been told otherwise. 
I think that's such a great sign of when you're on to something is when you worry about your peril only as it yes. relates to not finishing the project. Yeah, yeah. Are there others who you have run across in all of this massive exploration you've done who are similarly important in, you know, sort of our historical understanding? Yes, you're nodding already. Yes, I'm excited. I'm nodding okay. vig vigorously. Okay, I don't know great. if it translates into audio. That is a very <laughs> uh, firm nod. So a couple of years ago, or already a few years into the podcast, somebody asked me if I'd ever interviewed Craig Rodwell. Um, Craig Rodwell was the principal organizer behind the first Pride March. Mm. Now, what the first Pride March did a year after the Stonewall Uprising in June of 1970 was cement Stonewall as a symbol and a key turning point. It was a key turning point, but it wasn't a brand. Hmm. And, I, and I didn't know how that all happened, but it turned out Craig Rodwell, who had been involved in the movement from the early 1960s, who dated Harvey Milk, you know, wow. go no, yeah. um, as a teen, when he was a teenager, and Harvey Milk was working on Wall Street. This oh, was the, man. This was pre-gay rights Harvey Milk. Um, so I, I said, no, I don't, I don't think I interviewed Craig Rodwell. And then... One of the people I work with said, uh, she saw the, the, the emails going back and forth. She checked the archive. She said, you interviewed Craig Rodwell. Oh, wow. He wasn't in the book. So I, 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 I didn't remember everybody. Um, what happened was I interviewed Craig. I had a terrible cold and he was also late for a train. So we had about an hour and 15 minute conversation. And I said, I'll come back and interview you. We have used pieces of that interview, I think now three or four times. His story is incredible. He was at and helped organize the first public protest of gay people in the U.S. ever in 1964 in front of the Whitehall Army Induction Center in downtown in the Financial District of Manhattan, was involved in the first public protest in 1965 in Washington, was one of the people who helped organize the Reminder Day protest, the first annual protest beginning in 65 in Philadelphia. And then he was the one who got those Reminder Day protests shifted in a vote at a meeting of the North American Conference of Homophile Organizations in November of 1969, got it switched to the last weekend in June to mark the Stonewall Uprising. It was called the Christopher Street Liberation Day March. They didn't want to be associated with a with a bar raid, mm -hmm. and really the fight was in the streets of, of Greenwich Village, he got the date moved and then urged all the other organizations from around the country to mark that date as well and to have marches or celebrations or protests of their own and to do it every year thereafter. Almost nobody knows who Craig Rodwell is. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows who, well, not everyone, um, we often speak of Marsha B. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera in relation to Stonewall. Sylvia wasn't at Stonewall. Marsha B. Johnson told me that. Uh, Marsha didn't get there until after the first night was pretty much over. Um, but Craig Rodwell is such an important figure in our history, and he's virtually unknown. But we have tried very hard through his own voice, mm -hmm. telling his own story, to make sure that he is not forgotten. Hmm. And does he talk at all about what where he was inspired to organize in that way? Yes. Oh, yeah. He was arrested at 14 for wow. having sex with a man in Chicago. Yeah, he was radicalized wow. early. And then he was uh, 
He was at Reese Park, which is a beach here in New York City. It mm-hmm. is on a, a barrier island off of Queens, mm-hmm. where my dad took me when I was a kid. I didn't know it was a gay beach. I don't know if he knew mm-hmm. it was, but it was just a, a popular beach. And he was um, arrested for wearing a Speedo bathing suit. Men were not allowed to show their navels or upper thighs. <laughs> oh, my gosh. In public in the early 1960s. I think it was 61 when he was arrested. And uh. he pretty much knew that if he walked by the police, they were going to grab him. Um, but they, they brutalized him and threw him in jail. Yeah. Um, uh. oh, he, has a, he had a long history of being what Frank Kameny, one of the other key figures of the movement, called being radicalized, that, that the hobnailed boot of, of the government came down hard on you and you fought back. And I heard this mm. over and over again from people I interviewed. They were mm. arrested. They were fired from their job. A close friend was murdered. And they were driven to get involved because they didn't want the same thing to happen to someone of the next generation. Are there other... Um partners that you that have come up in your in your research that you that could spring to mind right now as being you know worth mentioning in terms of you know their significance partners meaning um life partners uh people who were either working visibly in tandem yes with a same-sex partner or absolutely or hidden absolutely my favorite couple of all time barbara giddings and kayla Husen. They literally, mm-hmm. they were the happy warriors of the movement. They had such mm-hmm. a good time and used humor in such a way beginning in the 1960s. And they survived mm-hmm. the, uh, the, what I think of as the purge that came after the Stonewall Uprising, the purge of the older homophile activists um, because mm-hmm. they were in their 30s. And, and the new activists who came in, in the, uh, after Stonewall were much younger and more radical. Barbara and Kay were instrumental in the mid-1960s in those first marches in front of the White House. Uh, Barbara was the editor of The Ladder, the lesbian magazine, and pushed it more to the uh, to being more activist-oriented. And they were key in getting homosexuality removed from the list of mental illnesses in 1973. Wow. And they used humor, and they were inventive, and they had fun. Mm. Um, I remained in touch with Barbara and Kay long after the book was published. And Kay became a phone buddy for me after she and Barbara moved into a retirement community in um, Pennsylvania. Um, And after Barbara died, Kay and I would talk every other week, sharp as a tack. She was a photojournalist. And if if you've seen pictures, black and white photos, of the movement from the 1960s and the early 70s, it was almost certainly Kay's photos. She went by Kay Tobin, was her pseudonym. She was Kay Tobin Lehusen. And she died not that long ago. And when my enthusiasm and my energy flagged, which it often has over the last six years of doing this podcast, she would say, you can't give up. You must tell these stories. Mm -hmm. You are the one to carry the ball forward. And I'd say, Kay, you know, I'm just one person. (laughs) And I can only do so much. She said, no. And I'm tired. I'm tired, exactly. I'm I'm old. I'm going to start on Medicare in November. She'd say, you have to. You have to do this. So... I think of Kay all the time. I think of Barbara all the time. They devoted their lives to this, and they are my heroes. Um, So, yeah. That's amazing. All right. Well, my my final question, which you may have just answered, um, is if there is a person that you would consider to be a significant other, you know, prominently important in your 
life's work. I don't know if it's Barbara Bradley Hegarty or if it's, you know, these sort of godmothers of the carrying the historical ball forward, but that's my last question. I've been fortunate to have a number of mentors. Um, I think back to when I was working on this book, and one of my key mentors was Randy Schultz, um, who wrote And the Band Played On. I interviewed Randy for the book, and he said at the end of our interview, if you ever need help, if you need encouragement, call me. And he meant it. And I did. Um, I did call him for support, and he was a generation ahead of me. A generation? No, not even. 10, 15 years older than I am. And he gave me all of his FBI files from his Freedom of Information filings, which served me well in my work on the history wow. book. No kidding. Um, so Randy is one of those people. He's also forgotten mm. for the most part by now because his book was published in the 1980s. But he was somebody who really struggled as a journalist because nobody would hire him because he was gay. And he was fierce. And I'm not. I really am not fierce. Mm. And I tend to set the bar lower than it needs to be. Um, in my current work, it's Sarah Burningham. She has the co the founding producer of Making Gay History and the story editor for our current season and many of our other seasons, Sarah sets the ball very high. And I listen to her because 99.999% of the time, she's right. So even if it means, hmm. oh, this is like the, three, the, the worst words that Sarah can ever say are, I have an idea. Because <laughs> that always means... A lot uh, of work for or, you. <laughs> I just found a piece of tape. So mm. with the... With the with the episode we're working on right now, there's a speech that Harvey Milk gave on, I think it was called Gay Liberation Day or something like that in June of 1978. It was a key speech. And everyone has said there's no tape. Sarah came across a little piece of tape of a little of it. So we have a oh, little wow. of it. She also, it's just it, really, so Sarah um, has really been my mentor throughout this this journey since we first started working together in 2016. Mm. There are so many people who who were the angels who made this podcast possible and made this work possible. Mm -hmm. I was just lucky mm -hmm. to be asked to record the interviews. Um, mm -hmm. And here I am. And I didn't die during the AIDS crisis, as did so many other people. Um, yeah, no kidding. So, well, do you think CBS is mad? That they, uh, they didn't fire me. They just said that I, you know, I couldn't. <laughs> they didn't take advantage of your. You know, my 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 properly. partner in life, who I've been with for nearly thirty years, has said that on a number of occasions, it's a good thing that CBS didn't put you on exactly. air. Exactly. Well, not because of the reasons exactly. you're, you're thinking. He said you would have been insufferable. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, no. Uh, I thought it was one of those closed-door, open-window He always does say that. No, no, no. When I got fired from the American <laughs> Foundation for Suicide Prevention, he said, he waited a day. He said, this is the best thing that could have ever happened to you. Right. I didn't appreciate it at the time. He was right. No. And I really think, I'm not spiritual, I'm not religious, I do think that the people I interviewed were not happy with seeing their words in print. They wanted mm. to speak for themselves. And mm. so they... This sounds crazy. They conspired to get me fired so that I would come back to my gay oh, work and have a whole new chapter to my life and that they would then get to tell their own stories and that I would help them tell their stories through the podcast. So, hmm. you know, a lot of mysteries in life. I and, I, and I've come to that's think great. I like that. I like that story. Yeah, yeah. that's a good yeah. one. 
Well, thank you so much for being with us. This has really been a treat. And I hope everybody goes to listen to every episode of Making Gay History because it's such a resource. Oh, thank you for saying so. Thank you. And I so appreciate being with you today. Join us next week on Significant Others to find out which aviating heroine wore men's underpants when she flew and find out whose they were. Significant Others is produced by Jen Samples. Our executive producers are Nick Liao, Adam Sachs, Jeff Ross, and Colin Anderson. Engineering and sound design by Eduardo Perez, Rich Garcia, and Joanna Samuel. Music and scoring by Eduardo Perez and Hannes Brown. Research and fact-checking by Michael Waters and Hannah Sio. Special thanks to Lisa Berm, Jason Chalemi, and Joanna Solitaroff. Talent booking by Paula Davis and Gina Batista. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly.